Welcome to episode three of Explore History's podcast, Memories of Old Warlingham, a window into village life in Victorian times. In the previous two episodes, we were learning a lot from the author, Arthur Burdell, about what life was like in the village when he was a young boy. He goes into a lot of detail about everyday life, some of the workmen that were there, the way the school functioned, and some of the music that they played. All sorts of different topics are covered. What we see in the later stages of his journal as we get into episode three, is that it becomes in some ways much more personal. He starts to talk about things that relate to the village in general, but also that are much more personal things to him, things that affected his life. And we saw that a bit in the last one when he talked about kind of the love of violence that they had, the competitions they had between Warlinham and the boys of Croydon. And in this one in particular, we see it goes a bit deeper. Things that he was involved in personally, and we get a real interesting perspective on the life of the village at this time. So let's get started. We'll jump right in, uh, picking up where we left off on our podcast. Around about 1894, we had a series of farm fires. Warlingham Court had most of its outbuildings burnt down, and Bats Farm suffered in like manner. Then Bottom Barn Farm came next, followed by the Ganderstead Estate Farm, hard by the old rectory. Here I saw horses lying dead with their legs partly burnt off. Suspicion fell on a laboring man who lived at Bat's farm as the culprit, but nothing could be proved. It was noticed that he was always the first one to see the fires and give the alarm. He at that time had a brother working at Bughill Farm as a carter. One day he came down and brought dinner for his brother. I was working there as a cowman. We were all working away from the farm that day, and fate would have it that one of the cows fell ill. A lassie who was minding them came to us about it, so I left the job and went to the farm with the lassie. Just before we reached the farm, I saw black smoke billowing up from behind the barns, which concealed the stockyard. I left the cows in the road and sped to the farm to see the suspect man walking away from the stockyard across the newly sown cornfield to reach the road. He did not see me as I rushed in through the chaff house adjoining the barn to find its two stacks on fire. One, a haystack, I put out at once with my hands. The second one was too much a light for one to put out, but it was on the lee side where he had fired it and was burning round into the wind. This stack, an oat one, stood about six feet from the barn with other stacks close by. One or two men soon came running in. We got a long ladder. I mounted up to the eaves and stood on the roof nearest the fire. My ladder was removed for safety and a short one erected. Water was fetched from the pond close by. One man reached it up to the eaves. I grabbed the buckets from there and poured the water out systematically round the part where the fire was below me so that it flowed down through the stack, not only preventing the fire ascending but gradually putting it out altogether. This was far better in effect than a dozen men throwing the water at the stack when standing below. Soon after we got it out, along came our local fire engine. Men had seen the fire from the hill above, and one ran and called the brigade. I was secretly amused to see the culprit bring in my cows, put them in the yard, then seize a bucket and work like a Trojan, bringing water to me with the rest. At the end of it all, our firemen were there. The foreman asked, had anyone been seen likely to have fired the stacks? At once, I, being still on the stacks, said, yes, I have and pointing to the man below, said, There is the man. I explained that he had walked through the stockyard gate into the field. Now this field had been recently sown with corn, so all his footmarks showed clearly. All the people rushed to this gate, but were wisely kept back. The man stayed with me. He was on the ground, I on the stack. Luck was against him, as he had one boot trod over on one side, 
and this showed clearly in his footmarks. The police were fetched. He was made to take off his boot, an impression was made by the side of the footmarks, with which he considered. Then all were covered over with straw for protection. While this was going on, he stood alone, minus his boot below me. All at once he began to run away towards Worlingham. I called out and he was soon recaptured. Sergeant Walker of Worlingham arrested him. But as Bughill Farm was in Chelsham, he had to hand him over to the county police at Caterham. Later at Godston, all the local farmers came to hear the case, as they had a grueling time sitting up night after night, as they were in fear of having their bur farms burnt down also. I was highly nervous as to how I should face up to giving my evidence, as I had never been in a police court before. When I got started, I concentrated deeply on what I had to say, so as not to err from the truth in any way. So I made a success of it. Taking the oath and kissing the Bible kept me straight. I was pulled up with a jerk after I'd spoken my first sentence by the clerk of the court, who said, Stop! And I saw that he was writing it down in longhand. As soon as he had the sentence written down, he said, Now go on. And then I proceeded, sentence by sentence, till my whole story of my evidence, which was somewhat lengthy, as I was the chief witness, was complete. Then the clerk turned to me and said, Arthur Burdell, listen to this, will you? If anything is wrong, tell me. Then he read over all my evidence, and there was but one mistake. This I pointed out. He once corrected it. The mistake was he had written down, I met this man when I saw the fire. I explained that I saw the man, but did not meet him. The man was committed for trial to be held at Guildford, a seize, about two months later. Just before the day arrived, I was served with a notice that I was to appear as a witness at the trial, and warned that I should be liable to a fine of £10 in the event of default. Again, I got into a nervous state as I realized that after a lapse of two months, my mind was not absolutely clear. As to the whole of my evidence given at Godston, which I shortly had to repeat word perfect at the trial, I told one of the farm men how I felt in the matter. All he said was, you should not have to sit so much. Then another awful thing was sprung on me, that there might be a lot of cases apart from ours to be heard before our case was heard. We might be there a week before our case came on. I was worried over this ever so. I had never slept away from home before, and I had no money to pay for my food, railway fare, and lodging. So I was getting only 11 shillings a week then for mother and I to live on. On the day, all my fears vanished. I was conducted by an inspector and sergeant of police from Worlingham Station to Guildford. Arriving there, we entered a room at the Assize Court to await the arrival of the judge, who had gone to the special service before the court was open. His return was announced by heralds with trumpets who were on horseback. We all rushed out to see him arrive in his coach, an innovation for me. Later we returned to our room when a policeman came up and asked for the farm foreman. Away they went for a short time. On the return I was asked for, and away I went. We were shown into a long room with a lot of gentlemen seated, one standing conducting me into a witness box, where I had to take the oath, then tell the company as near as possible all I had said at the court at Godston. Suddenly I was giving my evidence. One of the gentlemen asked me a question. As I was not clear as to what the question was, I stopped dead. A painful minute silence ensued. The gentleman who ushered me into the witness box, who had remained standing, must have guessed that I failed to grasp the question, for he, to my relief, repeated it, and I at once answered with alacrity, and then completed my evidence. On my return, the police inspector said at once, he is to be convicted as they have returned a true bill against the prisoner. I inquired how did they know that. 
He then said that I had been giving my evidence to the grand jury. As no further witnesses were called after me, a true bill had been returned. I also learned to my joy that our case was the first one on the list. We were now all ushered into the Assize Court. Again, I got into a very nervous state. There sat the judge in all his robes with all the other legal representatives in their robes of office and wigs. A big crowd of spectators sat in the tiers. All the grand jury sat sideways to the judge who had a lady by his side. High up sat another body of men with a notice saying, Jurors in waiting. There the case, our case, began and I heard with real joy the public prosecutor get up and read out, Arthur Burdell will tell you, etc., reading all my evidence over which I had given at Godston. I heard all the grand jury sworn in before the case began. The foreman of the fire was first called. He was flustered and to my merriment started to walk into the box where the prisoner was. All he had to say was he was present. In my case, I had only a few questions to answer from the grand jury. But I was unnerved when I felt my knees shaking and hitting the side of the witness box. After my evidence was concluded, I was called back again as a juryman had asked of the judge, was the man smoking when I saw him? The judge put this question to me, to which I replied in the negative. The judge then addressed the jury and said, if the man had been smoking and set the stacks alight by accident, naturally he would have gone and asked for help to put them out, etc., etc. He was sentenced to 12 calendar months imprisonment. Another interesting thing here was the hunting. Staghounds met and turned the stags out at Worms Heath and Farley Common. Foxhounds also met here and drew all our local woods. Eyes the boy used to go with them for a distance. Once I saw the fox killed close to Kingswood Lodge. We used to find out which woods were to be drawn aforetime and run across fields to see all we could. Old Sam Hills was the huntsman and lovely Tommy was the chief whip. It was the huntsman's job to coax the hounds to follow him to the course and the chief whip's job to whip up the laggards and strays as he rode behind. Lovely Tommy once boasted that none had ever seen him thrown from his horse at any time. One old plowman who heard him make this remark challenged him, saying he had seen him thrown on one occasion. Where? asked Lovely Tommy. In Warden Park, replied the old man. You were riding one horse and leading two others. These two led horses were frightened. One jumped in one direction and the other, and you were pulled out of your saddle and thrown. Lovely Tommy had to own up to the, that this was true. One pound was paid to the reapers when a fox was found in the, the coverts late in the hunting season and ten shillings in the early part of the year. We also had drag hounds here on some occasion. It's a fine spectacle to see the gay colours of these hunts in our village. The huntsmen in their red coats and the ladies in their riding habits and hard hats all riding side saddle. It was in those days that we knew well where all the bridleways were. And these were used extensively by those taking part in the hunts when passing through to the meets in other districts. When I was a boy of eight, I belonged to the Sunday school at the Wesleyan Chapel. And while I remember the Sunday school treat to the Crystal Palace, we're all packed in farm wagons and the old carters walked all the way driving their horses, dressed up for the occasion. One carter, an old Irishman, wore bright blue trousers. I remember years later that his wife took his dinner to him out on the farm. The old lady said, Jock, I didn't have enough blackberries to make a blackberry pudding, so I put a few pralies in it. As we rode through Croydon, all the people cheered, and we shouted back with might and main. Our wagon was the first to arrive. Down we all got, and was straightaway admitted. 
My, wasn't I in my glory. I saw several balloons being inflated and the several fountains shooting up cascades of water. So Joseph Paxton's masterpieces, as I learned long years later. Then many birds, including golden pheasants. Golly, I couldn't leave these. Then in the big hall was the wonderful organ, and here 5,000 children were singing at once. They stood in tears and, when finished, held up their hymn books with their backs towards us. They were specially grouped for effect in three colors, red, white, and blue. The lovely effect they had when they swayed them to and fro. Here I suddenly woke up to the fact that I was lost. My mother, who came later with other women and had hunted for me all day. I'd had no food, but what mattered about that? I'd had a wonderful time all alone. At last a Worlingham woman saw me and cut short my happy time. I was yanked round to my mother, who was in tears. I was given some tea and asked many questions. One was, did you see the fountains play? No, I replied. I did not realize that was what was meant by playing. I thought it meant have a game. Many parishioners kept a pig through the summer months. Styes of various types were made, some solely of gorse bushes. Early on, the pigs had to be wrung to prevent their grubbing up the earth too much inside the sty. A sharp-pointed nail-like ring was held with a pair of special pliers and pushed through the top part of their nose, and then clenched to form a ring as this iron was extremely ductile and bent easily. The pig was secured with a piece of cord with a noose. This was dangled in front of his nose with the noose conveniently open. The pig opened his mouth, seized the noose, which was then drawn tight. When it was secured to the doorpost while he yelled with, with might and main while the rung was rapidly inserted. I've seen travelers' samples of these rings, different counties and different types. Some were made with elaborate rollers, etc. But we had a simple type in use here. The pig was fed with middlings, which was a flour of midden fineness mixed with what was called locally wash. That was the kitchen waste. This was collected from the neighbors to make up the required quantity. These pigs were kept sometimes until they weighed over 40 stone, 8 pounds to the stone. Killing day was announced beforehand. All the people nearby gave their orders for their respective joints of fresh pork. Even the chitlings were disposed of also. That was the small intestines cooked for food. A day. Hot water was got ready in various utensils such as saucepans, kettles, etc. A long special stool was usually borrowed and a big tub also borrowed. One of the sales family, no wonder a riddle was made up about them as follows. Why is Warlingham like an auction mart? Because of the sales that are in it. That was the answer. An old man was the killer. He came along with his sharp knives and scuds. First thing he did was to test the water for the required heat not quite boiling. This he did with his hand by thrusting it into the water. With the water right, stool and tub and brushes in position, close up to the sty, the pig was caught, leaned onto the stool and killed, then rapidly rolled into the tub. The water poured on him, then the scuds were seized and energetically used on the carcass, quickly removing all its hair, except the long hairs on the face. These were usually shaved off. The killing took place in the morning. The carcass was hung up on a convenient hook or staple, usually fixed to a beam or joint in the ceiling of scullery or shed after the inside had been removed. At night it was cut up into the required joints for the neighbors who came to fetch them. Any surplus over was usually salted down in pans. Early on, hams were hung on convenient hooks well inside the old-fashioned chimneys to be smoked. Of course, only wood fires were used. 
I've seen them going through this process of being cured in one of the old chimneys here, the joints as black as the soot itself. But the result was the thing that told the tale. When the district and parish councils came into force, a system of sanitation was then insisted on with concrete floors and suitable drains. This was an obstacle the ordinary cottager could not surmount, so it all died out. No longer could one see the people collecting acorns in autumn, nor see them with bundles of bracken for bedding. All was ended for good. Another thing that died out was the leasing or gleaning in the fields. Numbers used to do this for food. I, for one, have gleaned in several fields at Worlingham after asking permission from the farmers. When finished, the straw was cut off and the ears threshed with a flail, and sifted in the corn exchange with the baker for flour. In 1895, the evening continuation class was started at the old school. Mr. Clark, our old schoolmaster, was in charge. On the opening night, the school was packed with chiefly men. As this was an unheard of thing, they all came to see and hear what form of tuition was to take. Of course, it was not for the illiterate, not that I was much better. I inquired what subjects were to be studied and was told that mensuration was one. What is that? I inquired. The art of measuring, I was told. If there was a subject I wished to learn, it was that one. For when I worked on the farm for Mr. Ruffy, he, being a land valuer, etc., used to get me to help him measure the sections of the various harvesters who cut the corn at so much per acre. I held the chain one end while he took the other and wrote down the results and worked out the acreage after he got home. When I took the milk up to his house at night, he handed me the worked out slips for me to take back and give to the respective harvesters in their resting places in the barns. Many thought that they had been cheated as to the area they had cut, but they had no redress as they had no knowledge of measuring. After the first night, practically all the elder men left. I soon got into difficulties as I had no knowledge of decimals or fractions, let alone cube or square root. I had a brief study of these and soon mastered them. Then I was more eager than all the others to make progress. The class met twice a week, so the amount taught each evening was limited. It was not near enough for me, so I asked Mr. Clark if I could take some homework home. He agreed and found me exercise books for writing in. At night I sat for hours, usually midnight ere I called a halt. I loved this work. It to me was a joy untold. I pushed on with speed, Mr. Clark marking my work and giving me every incentive for rapid progress. Mr. Clark marking my work and giving me every incentive for rapid progress. Of course, no one else realized the great importance of knowing how to measure like I did. When the inspector came over from Kingston, he saw my work and said to me, Look here, young man, you've qualified for a prize. Not for my ability, but for my regular attendance. I shall send you a book on mensuration, and you see to it that you never neglect to study it. Of course, I readily agreed to his suggestion, for at that time I was, it was more pleasure to me than any other pleasure in the world. I attended the classes for three years. In the end, we learned shorthand, and the singing lesson was so greatly loved that finally we started a black troupe and gave an attractive entertainment which all the parish came to see. Mr. Guy Church was organizer-in-chief, made a first-class drop curtain for the front of the stage, and painted all the scenery. He was the chief corner man, and I the interlocutor. One special joke I remember still. Have you heard of the new discovery in the art of trepanning, Mr. Johnson? No bones. What is that? They cut a small piece of bone out of your head, take out your brains, wash them and dust them, and put them back and fix on a plate. A short time ago, several young men were operated on in this way, when a sad calamity occurred. 
for after washing and dusting their brains, they fixed on the plate and quite forgot to put them back in again. What did they do with them? They had no option only to give them government appointments. Mr. Church found the necessary dresses and wigs for us all and did our makeup. One item which highly amused all the women of War Linen was the stage was cleared and then the drop curtain went up and it was noticed that a white sheet about three feet six inches high stretched right across the stage. Then the pianist started to play, ten little black boys, and as each phase was reached in the numbers, each hidden lad sprung up from behind the screen to face the audience. The lovely part was none of the mothers present were able to recognize their own sons, they had never seen them made up like this before. But what an enjoyable time the whole of the parish had that night, listening to the many black songs, many of which were entirely new to them. It was lovely also to see all the people fraternizing together in complete happiness. The old school was Worthingham's concert hall, general meeting place for various objects at nights. Mr. Harry Golden gave some excellent concerts there, having first-class artists down from town. He himself was a great comic singer. Earlier on, the church people had a glee club, which was a great attraction. Two lots of minstrel troops gave entertainments. One company was the NIP Minstrels, which meant nothing in particular. The next troop were called the IDK Minstrels, you wish to know what the letters IDK denoted, you were instructed to go outside and ask the first person you met what they stood for. Then he or she would give you the answer. I don't know. The main body of the school was at that time one big room, not divided into classrooms as now. That concludes episode three of Explore History's podcast, Memories of Old Warlingham, A Window in the Village Life in Victorian Times. I hope you've enjoyed it and are continuing to enjoy Arthur's story of what life was like in this small Victorian village. In the meantime, we'll be getting on to the next one very shortly, but you're welcome to, first of all, give us a like if you've liked the episodes. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, or visit the Explore History website and see what we have on offer. Travel blogs, uh, there's an archives of all sorts of documents that it's free to use, and you can go and explore to your heart's content. Hope you've enjoyed it.